Genesis 15. Um, <laughs> thanks. Let me, let me read a little bit, and then we'll, we'll go in. I, I do want to ask you this question, though, before we, before we go into this. Um, how many of you have ever, and it's okay to raise your hand, because I'm assuming everybody's going to raise your hand, so this is more of a hypothetical, whatever, qu- uh, question. But um, how many of you have ever prayed something, and you felt like, in response, you got silence from God? Okay, that's me. Awesome. Everybody. Great. That's what I thought. Everybody watching online, I'm assuming everybody has uh, raised their hands. Growing up, I, I've heard a lot of messages, and I know you have too. We've heard a lot of messages that sound something to the effect of this. Um, even when God is silent, God is good. Everybody, anybody ever heard that, right? Or, um, or uh, even, even though there's silence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the faith, or I'm going to stand stronger. There, we have a lot of um, uh, ideas and messages around even when God is silent, I'm going to be faithful. I have a couple of issues with this, and I'm, I'm going to break this down. Number one, when we talk like that, we're assuming that depending on God's mood, he's either going to talk to us or he's just going to be quiet toward us. That's, that's number one, what we're assuming in that. Number two, we're assuming, assuming we're the ones that are consistent and God's the one that's fickle. Yeah, right, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Right? Even when God is silent, depending on his mood, he might be silent today, he might be happy today, he might talk today, he might not today, but you better believe I'm going to be consistent. Right? I don't think we think about some of this stuff when we talk about it. So today, I'm going to prove to you, hopefully, that God's silence, that we would call it, I don't even like that word, but just to use the the popular, you know, uh, cliche terminology, that God's silence is actually goodness. So I'm not going to talk about what we do when God is silent. I'm going to talk about why God's silence is something we should find joy in. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. Y'all know me. I like to mess with how we think, so that's basically what we're going to do today. We have a tendency to label God's silence as something negative. When I say God's silence, I'm talking in our terms, of course, and what we call God's seeming unwillingness to divulge details to the here and now or primarily the future. When I say silence, what comes to your mind is God's seeming unwillingness to give you details about the future. Right? So silence has three meanings in Webster's Dictionary. Okay? It means forbearance, or I'm going to break that down because most people don't know what forbearance means. So, forbearance means patient self-control, okay? So, let me, so here's what silence means. It means patient self-control from speech or noise, patient self-control from speech or noise, number one. Number two, it means stillness, and number three, it means obscurity or something hidden, Okay, we associate silence with absence. We associate silence with absence. Though silence is impossible in absence. You ever, when you, when you were growing up, did you ever hear the phrase uh, or the, the kind of thing? I don't even know what it is, but uh, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Right? 
Okay, growing up, I thought that was so dumb. It was like, of course it makes a sound. Nobody's just there to hear it, right? Some, some of y'all even right now are just like, wait, you know. Um, I shouldn't use that. Silence, the, the word silence is impossible if you're not present. Let me say, if I'm in California today, I could be screaming as loud as humanly possible and none of y'all are going to hear me. So to you, it might be silence, but I'm screaming, right? So it's absence. Now, if we're in the room together and I turn this mic off and just close my eyes and sit in quiet, I'm being silent, but I'm very present, right? So to define something as silence You also have to define whatever that thing you're calling silence as, as being present. Because it's only possible to be quiet or silent if you're present for somebody to possibly hear a word you say. But we, we associate God's silence with him actually being absent. The enemy has sold us a lie that we're so easily, continually falling into. That when Yahweh uses divine restraint, is what I'm going to call it, toward us, divine restraint toward us, for our own good, he's actually absent. That's what the enemy tries to teach us, and we buy into it very easily. I would argue, if you see it right, that Yahweh is most present in these moments. Here, so this, I'm, I'm about to kind of give you a scenario, this real-life scenario, and this is going to guide our whole day-to-day. So if you're going to pay attention to something, this is it. So here, in this moment, you might ask the question, why would Yahweh ever be silent toward us? I think that's, the, I think that's really the issue. Why in the world would he ever stop talking? Let me give it to you in a more relevant way. There are moments that we know we're going to do something good for our daughter. So let's just say we're going to give her a cookie after dinner. Okay? It's a good thing. I love cookies. Right? So, so there's moments that we know we're going to do something good for our daughter. That we don't tell her ahead of time. Why? Why wouldn't we tell her that? Because if we said, after dinner, we're going to give you a cookie, she wouldn't eat dinner, and instead would try to go get the cookie now on her own. Okay? So our presence, mine and Jordan, our presence hasn't changed at all. But for her own good, so let's say eating her vegetables first, For her own good, we are silent on the details of what's to come after dinner. Y'all with me? Okay, I'm trying to be as simple as possible. So now, I love this stuff. Now, suppose she asked us in this scenario what we're doing after dinner. We would remain silent or possibly change the subject. And I'm saying this because this is something that we've done. Why? Why would we do that? Because we're mean, or we're suddenly absent from her life, or because we're not good, or because if she knew what was coming, 
she would try to get it done on her own and ruin her dinner. People are going to be so mad about this. So in this case study, I would ask you the question, is our silence as parents good or is it evil? Just remember all the, th- all the stuff y'all saying right now. You would say it's good. Knowing what you know, knowing how the story plays out, you would say it's good. But what if I didn't tell you the outcome at all? What if I just told you we're going to eat dinner, but I'm not going to tell you what's happening next? You in the room, what if you had no idea what we actually had planned on the other side of dinner? And all you saw All you saw in this scenario was us seeming to be silent toward her question. Okay? Y'all with me? Let's say you don't know what's coming, and then I ask you. You're you're watching this play out, and Veda says, Hey, what are we doing after dinner? And me and Jordan just remain silent. And you don't know what's coming. Then you likely label our actions as evil. Why? Because you're viewing it through the lens of independence. Okay? And if you missed that, go back and watch last week. We are creatures designed to be creatures of dependence. The fall, the primary reason for the fall is an idea that we can be independent from God. That's, that's where everything went south. Okay? We're viewing this whole situation. I'm playing out for you right now through the lens of independence, which is why when you watch this played out, not knowing the ending, you would look at me and Jordan being silent and say they're bad parents. You think, and I say you, just whoever's hearing this, you think you can do better on your own, but to do it on your own, you need all the information. So if I withhold the information independence requires, you would see it negatively and evil because that would make you dependent on the one with the information. Right? Are are y'all tracking with me? I know this is a lot. Okay? What happened at the fall? Independence. Dependence was our design. And for us to see his kingdom come, it's going to have to be preceded by us being reborn into what was natural and is natural, dependence. So when, when do you get anxious in life? Just think about it. Like when does anxiety come over you? When you don't know what's coming. Why? Because you think you're in control. In order for me to control something, I've got to have all the information so that I can look at the information and make a hypothesis of what is the best outcome of that information. If I'm independent. Now, if I'm dependent on a Yahweh who is good, then even when I don't know what's coming, anxiety is nowhere near me because I know he's good. Y'all with me? Okay. So anxiety is a symptom of a deeper issue primarily your body operating outside of its intention. What happens when you have a symptom of a disease? You get sick, right? You start coughing, you get stuffy, whatever. 
when that happens, it's your body saying something's not right. You have, I've taught on this before. Symptoms of a disease is your body making it very clear something's not right and it needs to be fixed. Okay? That's just how our bodies work. It's how the Lord designed us. Anxiety is a symptom of a deeper issue. It's a, it's a symptom of a deeper sickness. I would say the deeper sickness is an unwillingness for us to just live in dependence of a good God. I mean, at the baseline of it, that's what it is. You weren't designed to be independent. You were designed to live in rest and in trust. Now see the previous proposition, that whole cookie dinner thing. See that through the lens of dependence rather than independence. Then you would judge if we're good or evil based not on an exchange of information, but the character of the ones that she is dependent on. I, I, like I can see people just swirling, so let me just break this down, right? In, in, the, in the idea that we are independent creatures, you base me and Jordan in this situation, whether we're good or whether we're evil, based on if we gave her the information that she needs to be an independent character or an independent creature, right? But if you're viewing it through dependence, you're no longer looking at whether or not information was exchanged. You're now looking at the character of the one that she is dependent on. Right? So if Jordan and I had a track record of being great parents, and you knew it, then you would label our withholding of the answer to her question as good. Why? Because you know we're good parents. Y'all with me? So why do we see God's withholding of details sometimes in a negative light? Because we haven't been born again into originality. We haven't died to our independence. All I need to know, or all I should need to know, is God is good. And as a creature of dependence... I can find joy even in his withholding of information because I know the character of the one that I'm dependent on, which is good, infallibly unfailing goodness. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know what's coming tomorrow. I don't need to know what's coming for this church. I don't need to know how we're going to make it next month. All I need to know is that he is good, and I am totally dependent on him. So I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I fully believe that everything else that I need shall be added to me. Do you see what Jesus is teaching now? He's not teaching Seek first the kingdom of God, but you better bust it and 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 bust it. Because that's what we hear. We'll amen seek first the kingdom of God all day long and no one lives in it. That's what we do, right? Amen, brother. Like, no, like, live it. I'm talking to myself, too. Like, there's so many moments in my life where I think I can do a better job at life than God. If you just give me the information of what's to come. Let me give you a, a, just a very clear example. We're, we're praying for a building right now. As a church, we're praying for a building. We need a building. It would be awesome to have a building. 
And, um, and we're not going to go get a mortgage. We're going to trust the Lord's going to give us a building. That's just what we're going to do. We could, the Lord has blessed us, we could go get a mortgage tomorrow, but that ain't what this is about. This, this is about we, we are expecting him to provide for all of our needs in due season, okay? If the Lord told me tomorrow where the location of our building is going to be, when we're going to get it, who's going to give it to us, do you know what I would do tomorrow? Call up the person who's going to give it to us, go to that location, and try to expedite the process because we need it now. And you know what I would probably do? Ruin the whole situation. So it's actually better for God and His goodness to withhold the identity of our property right now because as I'm living in trust, He's working out all the details behind the scenes. Right? Okay. So, so this, this is the message. This whole idea is the message of knowing who we are and rest that we've been talking about the past three weeks. So I'm going to show you this in Scripture real clearly when God lets Abraham, or Abram, I'm going to call him the whole day because that's where we are in the story. When God gives Abram a picture into what's coming and how Abram ru- almost ruins the whole thing because of that knowledge. Okay? So go to Genesis 15. Matt actually brought up some stuff in Genesis 15 on Tuesday night that I'm going to steal. So thank you, Matt. Um, but Genesis 15. Okay. So let me give you kind of a real quick backstory as to what has happened up to this moment while you're kind of getting ready. So Abraham, um, or excuse me, first thing you need to understand, Sarai, his wife, is barren. She's unable to have kids. You, that's one, you've got to understand that to understand any of what I'm about to talk about, okay? She, his wife is unable to produce offspring. Okay, so in Genesis 12, Abraham or Abram, receives the promise of descendants, of blessing, and then later on in 12, of land. Okay? So primarily, descendants and the land that his descendants are going to live on. His wife can't have kids. It's kind of a poor promise to give somebody who isn't capable of reproducing anything. Right? So we think. Okay. Abram and his family go to Egypt because of a famine from Canaan. They leave Egypt with riches and male and female servants. Remember that too, okay? So they're in the land of Canaan. It's not theirs yet, but it's the land that ultimately would be their offsprings. They're in the land of Canaan. There's a famine in the land, and because of famine, they flee to Egypt. While they're at Egypt, there's some crazy situations where he calls his wife his sister. Technically, it is his half-sister, so it's just a bunch of weird stories. A lot of great stuff, but we're not going to get into any of that today. Um, They go to Egypt. Because of that whole situation, Pharaoh finds out, tells them, please leave because you're sending plagues on us. And, uh, And as they leave, they leave with riches, and they leave with male and female servants. Okay? Remember that. Remember that. Because one of those female servants is about to play a huge role in this. He and Lot split. It's the next thing that happens. Lot was Abram's nephew from his deceased brother, Haran. And, uh, and let me just give you a quick backstory on Lot and barrenness. So Abraham, because if you read this story, you, the whole time you're reading this, you think, why is Lot just here? He's not Abraham's son. He's his nephew, and yet he continually appears in this story. You know what I mean? So if you're here Tuesday night, kind of the same way we broke down Scripture then, 
It's like, why is he here? Over and over and over and over. Well, you have to remember, number one, his wife, Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren and couldn't have kids. But in Genesis 12, Abraham gets the promise that every bit of his destiny was going to be fulfilled because of descendants. So seeing that his wife was barren, he brings his nephew along whose dad has passed away, thinking through Lot, my proverbial son, the Lord's going to fulfill that promise. And that's why he brings Lot through all this stuff. Okay? All right. So there's so much in that. I'm just giving you a lot of Jewish background. So um, Abram, Abram rescues Lot and brings him back to himself. And then Abram gives a tenth of his possessions, the first tithe, as we would say, to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God Most High for blessing him. That's where we find ourselves in Genesis 15. Okay, so Genesis 15, I'm going to start at verse 1. I'm reading this actually. I was going to read this from the NLT, but um, I'm reading this in the Passion Translation. It's going to save me a little bit of time explaining some stuff. So, uh, But if you, any, any translation is pretty close. Genesis 15. Up till this point, let me just mention this real quick too. Abram, up till this point, Abram has not asked the Lord how the promise of descendants is going to happen. Up till this point, he's just walked by faith and trusted. Well, the Lord spoke. He'll take care of it. So up till this, he has not mentioned to the Lord, wait a minute. How in the world is this going to happen? My wife is barren. We're old. Most people don't have kids our age. How are you expecting this to happen? He doesn't ask that up till this point, number one. And this, as I'm about to read, is the first time Abram offers up a question of how. Okay? So remember everything that I kind of gave you in the intro, the whole scenario with me and Jordan and Veda, that whole thing, as I read through this. Okay. Genesis 15, verse 1. After the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision and said, Abram, don't yield to fear, for I am your faithful shield and your abundant reward. Don't yield to fear. Verse 2, listen to this. But Abram replied, Lord Yahweh, what good is your reward if I remain childless? I'm about to die without a son. And here's where he starts making assumptions. I'm about to die without a son, and my servant Eleazar of Damascus will inherit all my wealth. A servant in my household will end up with everything because you haven't given me any children. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I guess you're going to, because me and Lot, that whole thing, we've split. We've kind of gone our separate ways, all that stuff. So I guess now I'm left with my servant Eleazar. I guess he'll be the one to inherit everything because you haven't given me a son. Right? In other words, he's saying, how do you expect this to play out? Do you not see what's going on? Yahweh has withheld all this from him. All he's told him was that I'm going to give you descendants. Through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed, and I'm going to make your name famous. That's all he's told him. Didn't tell him how. Didn't tell him when. None of that stuff. He gives him a broad stroke promise. Now, why on earth would God give Abraham, or Abram at the time, this broad stroke promise knowing full well that his wife can't have kids? Why? Why wouldn't he give him the details of this? You're about to find out why. So, 
Uh, and and it's, it's going to come in a little bit. I just, I just want to, I was going to stop here, but I, I want to finish this out. Um, so he says, the servant in my household will end up with everything because you have not given me any children. Immediately, verse 4, the word of Yahweh came to him, no. So he's about to give him insight that he's withheld up to this point. No, Eliezer will not be your heir. I will give you a son from your own body to be your heir. Then Yahweh brought him outside his tent and said, Gaze, man, this, this wrecks me every time I read through this. Brought him outside the tent and said, Gaze into the night sky. Go ahead. Try to count the stars. He, well, thank you, Siri. Let me mute that right there. Siri, amen to me. Um, go ahead. Try to count the stars. He continued. Your seed will be as numerous as the stars. And listen to this. Abram trusted every word Yahweh had spoken, and because of his faith, Yahweh credited it to him as righteousness. Okay? So he's doing great with it all the way through here. The Lord gives him some insight. He says, I want you to go outside Really interesting to point out, he does not mention Sarah in that story. He says, through your body, Abram, through your body. doesn't mention Sarah, Sarai, okay? So he sends him outside. He says, count the stars. I don't know if you've ever tried to count the stars. It's impossible. So he said, count the stars. All those stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have, innumerable. And Abram doesn't go back and say, how again he simply trusts the word of the lord and it was credited to him as righteousness what is righteous right standing what is this trying to tell us right here before i go on it's trying to tell us that trust let's say dependence trust is right standing okay dependence is right where you need to be Do you see kind of in this Yahweh inviting Abram into a pre-fall design? He said, I don't, he's saying, he didn't give him any, he says, all I'm going to tell you is it's going to come through your body. That's it. Abram's old, real old. His wife, all I'm going to tell you is going to come through your body. I'm not going to tell you when, I'm not going to tell you how. I'm just going to tell you it's going to come through. He gives him some insight, and we're about to find out why that wasn't a good thing. Because though he walked out of the tent, looked up, counted the stars, and he trusted, you see throughout the rest of the text that his mind starts spinning now with this information. Oh, it's going to come through me. Didn't mention Sarah. How are we going to make this happen? Spinning, spinning, spinning. You ready? Okay, so... <clears throat> the rest of it. Then he said, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Babel, the Babylonian city of Ur to give you all this land to possess. But Abram said, Lord Yahweh, how can I be sure that I can possess this land for myself? So twice now, twice now, he's starting to get into, wait a minute, how is this going to happen? So Yahweh said to him, bring me a heifer, a female goat and a ram, each three years old, and also a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought the animals to him and killed them 
He cut them in two except the birds and laid each half opposite the other in two rows. Okay, let me stop right here. Let me stop right here. Because we'll read through this story and we'll just zoom by and not think twice about what's happening in this moment. Okay? Um, verse 7, so Abraham asked how he, he's going to inherit the land, how Yahweh's going to do this. So to get an idea of what's about to happen, and this is what I was talking about, Matt mentioned Tuesday night. To get an idea of how what's going on here. In Semitic culture, so in this culture back then, when you got married, when you got married, the bride's dad and you, and the bride possibly, but the bride's dad and you would show up to a location outside, and you would take animals like the ones that were just listed. You would cut them all in half and place them in a crevice in the ground where the blood would run. Okay? And as the blood ran together, the groom, the to-be, soon-to-be groom, would walk through it stomping, wearing a white robe so that the blood would splash on his robe. And what they were saying was, is if you give me your daughter and I don't honor her in the covenant that we're about to commit to, you can do this in my blood. In other words, if I don't honor my word, then you can take my life. I put my life on it. So the lesser party would do it first. Then the greater part party, the one that had something to offer, which would be the bride's dad, would walk through it as a sign to say, if I don't give you a virgin daughter like I've promised you, and she isn't everything that I've said, you can do this in my blood, in a white robe. And so they were literally, both of them were putting their life down on this covenant. Okay? What did Abram just say? How, how can I be sure any of this is going to happen? So Yahweh's about to enter into a marriage covenant with Abram. Wait, just wait till you hear this. This is so cool. This really doesn't have a lot to do with the rest of the story that I'm going to preach on today, but this is why I want to do this. So Abram brought the animals to him, killed them. He cut them in two except the birds and laid each half opposite the other in two rows. Now listen to this. Vultures swooped down upon the carcasses, but Abram stood there and drove the vultures away. Now, if vultures are going to swoop down on a dead animal, how long has that dead animal been there? It's been there a while, right? If you don't know anything about vultures, if, if an animal gets like hit in the middle of the road by a car and lays there, you're not going to see vultures swoop down and try to eat it immediately. It's going to wait until there's decay and it's melted a little or whatever's the case, and then you're going to see vultures come around it, right? So the idea that there are now vultures trying to eat these animals that Abram has cut in half tells us that Abram has been sitting there a long time. And what, what a lot of rabbis will teach is literally that Abram cut him, let the blood run, and then it hits him. Wait a minute. I'm putting my life on something that I know I cannot uphold. This is in what's called the, the Midrash. It's, it's an old Jewish commentary of the Torah. So Abram, the blood's running. He's sitting there thinking to himself, what am I doing? I can't do this. He, this is going to, I'm about to literally cost my life. 
So he falls into a deep sleep. This is where we're going to pick it up. Uh, verse 12. As the heavy veil of night fell, Abram, still sitting there, went into a deep state of sleep. And suddenly a great dreadful darkness surrounded him, and he was filled with fear. Then Yahweh said to Abram, in this dream, in this vision, whatever he's having right now, Yahweh says to Abram, know this, your descendants will live as strangers in a foreign country. They'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Afterward, I will punish that nation for enslaving them, and your descendants will come out of slavery with untold wealth. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and live a full life. And after the fourth generation, your descendants will return here. For then the sin of the Amorites will be ripe for judgment. That seems so random and weird until I kind of show you what's coming up. Why, in this whole covenant scenario, why is he talking about your descendants going to Egypt? I mean, it's like, that's super random, right? Some, it's, if you read this at face value and don't allow yourself to stop and be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You're going to read that and think, number one, the Lord's like, squirrel. You know what I'm saying? It's like this in this middle, this deep, intimate covenant moment. And all of a sudden he's like, man, oh, oh, by the way, your descendants is going to be in Egypt for 400 years, but you're going to die and you're going to be at peace. What? All right. That's huge, though. I'll show you why in a second. I'll show you why in a second. This is, this is why we need discipling and teaching and all that stuff. Okay. Verse uh, 17. When the sun had set and it was very dark, there suddenly appeared a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch that passed between the split carcasses or that are now coming over the blood. Okay? There's a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. On that day, Yahweh entered into covenant with Abram. If you're not careful, you'll completely zoom past any of that. What is Yahweh saying? Where do you, where do you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament especially, and even into the New Testament, Acts 2, where do you see the idea of smoke and fire? Does anybody, remember, does anybody know? Yeah, when they come out of Egypt, they're led by what? A cloud by day, let's say smoke, and fire by night, right? What, what calls Moses to go get the Israelites? A bush that's on fire. When Moses is on the mountain, there is fire and smoke that rests on the mountain as the Lord is giving him the, the Torah, right? As he's given him the law. Then you go all the way into the temple, and you see fire come from the presence of the Lord, that they're commanded never let go out. It comes from where? The Holy of Holies. What's the Holy of Holies? Where God is enthroned. So it comes from the presence of God, right? And then Acts 2, how does the Holy Spirit come on all the believers in the upper room? Through tongues of fire. So fire and smoke consistently represent, let's just say, the Lord. The presence of the Lord, the face of the Lord, the law of the Lord, all of it. Let's just say Yahweh, okay? But there's not just one in this vision going through this blood. And if you were here Tuesday night and heard Matt 
it, it kind of ruined the whole thing, so that's okay. But um, So there's not just one. There's two going through the fire. Not just one, two. So what's the Lord saying? A lot of modern commentators will say that one represented the Lord and one represented Jesus. And I think that might work, possibly. But what's happening here, what's happening here is the Lord. Because remember, what happened? Abram falls asleep sitting beside this blood thinking, what have I done? There's no way I can do this. So the Lord shows up in two individuals, smoking fire, and starts walking through it. What is he saying? One represents the Lord, and every rabbi in, in Jewish literature and text will tell you the other actually represented Abram. So what's he saying? He's saying, Abram, I know you're not going to be able to uphold this covenant. So I'm going to do it for you. And he goes through the fire. And then that's where the verse picks it up where it says, uh, that day Yahweh entered into a covenant with Abram. Now think about this. Think about this. Abram and his descendants, the Israelites ultimately, obviously did not keep their end of the covenant. They turned to idols. They cursed God. They did all this other craziness. They got exiled. Then what happens when your Bible goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Do they line up all the Israelites and say, y'all didn't keep the covenant? Now you're going to have to give your life for it. No. What, what do we hear? One of the first things we hear is, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus comes as the Word, the Word made flesh. So he comes as the Word, God's end of the covenant, and flesh, Abram's end of the covenant. Lives a perfect life, completely to the covenant. And then what does he do? He goes to a cross where his blood is spilled. So what do we say today all the time? I'm covered by the blood. Somebody's losing their mind. <laughs> um, or they're shouting, either one. So, do, but do you see, when me and Ellington were talking about this this week, how is, see, if you just read this from an English perspective and blow through it, you miss all this stuff, and you can say, this is random and weird. There's no God. That's what people do today. And I'm like, no, if we could just, if we could just boop, flip it on just for a moment and see how this is impossible for a man to come up with. Impossible. And see how thousands of years later, the Son of God comes and has to die on a cross where his blood is spilled from his body to cover us. When we take communion, what are we taking in the, in the wine, in the drink? His blood. Why is that so significant? Because Yahweh made a covenant to Abram that he intended to keep. Even if the other party wasn't going to fulfill it, he's so good that he was willing to uphold his end and his own end. And people, I mean, we have the, to read through the Old Testament that God is angry, he's fickle, he's mad. No, 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 no. God is so full of love that he knew we would fail and still had Jesus in mind. The New Testament says that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the earth. 
From the moment creation was spoken into existence, God knew Jesus was going to have to be the option to save everybody. And he still did it. So we've established the goodness of God. He enters into covenant with Abram. And then he says this, I've given this land to your descendants. Very key. Not He doesn't say to you, I've given this land to your descendants from the Egyptian border to the great river Euphrates. The entire land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedemites, the Hittites, Parasites, Rephites, the Amorites, Canaanites, and the Girgashites. That's my favorite one. I think that's such a funny word, Girgashites. And the Jebusites. Okay. So he gives them this big promise, covenant, the whole shebang. I want to point out one thing, too. I don't know if it's so random, and I'm saying this, of course, knowing what I'm about to teach you. I don't know if it's so random that in the middle of this whole covenant thing, he starts talking about them being enslaved for 400 years. Could it be that Abram, in his questioning, was starting to see things in terms of his lifetime? And Yahweh, in the middle of this covenant, is trying to expand his thinking from what you're going to see to 400 years of what they're going to see. In this moment, he's saying, I'm going to be in covenant with you. But in order for us to be in covenant, I've got to explode your view from just what you're going to see in your lifetime to what your descendants are going to see long, long after you're gone. So he does two things. He establishes covenant, and he stretches his thinking to start thinking in terms of legacy. Okay, unbelievable. So let me just read four more verses, and then that's it. I don't honestly have a ton after this. So everybody said amen. Genesis 16, just kidding. Verse 1. Now, now remember, what did he bring from Egypt? He brought possessions and male and female servants from Egypt. Okay? So just remember this. Also remember the Lord promised him that it would come from his own body, doesn't mention Sarai, and that Sarai, his own wife, is barren. Okay. Genesis 16. Now Sarai had bore no children for Abraham. But she had an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, please listen. Now, when your wife says, please listen, you absolutely listen. Since Yahweh, since Yahweh has kept me childless, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps through her, I can build you a family. Abram listened and did what Sarai asked. That's, you know what that sounds a lot like to me? Eve saw the tree was good to eat from. So she took a bite, and then what happened? She gave it to her husband. That's what this sounds like to me. She goes to Abram. Yahweh's kept me childless. So here's what we can do. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps through her I can build you a family. Verse 3, Abraham had already lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, and his wife Sarai took her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, 
and gave her to Abram to be his second wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Once Hagar realized she was pregnant, she belittled Sarai and despised her. And then it goes on that he names her Ishmael. That causes a lot of issues later down the road. So God told Abram in chapter 15, he told him that his descendants would be his own from him. Two things to know that I've been mentioning, but just to go through my notes. He doesn't mention Sarai. He only gives this information when Abram asks how this is going to happen. So Abram is asking for details, and Yahweh speaks simply to the reality of the future. Abram's like, how, how is this going to happen? And Yahweh says, all you need to know is your descendants are going to come through you. That's all you need to know. And he gives him insight. Now, what did we talk about earlier? If we know the character of the one who holds the information, we don't need the details. Why? Because we would probably go and mess it up. I know I would. If the Lord told me that this time next year you're going to have 10,000 people trying to get in the doors of this building, you know what I'd be doing? Probably start shifting how we do things. Not, beca not because I'm, I'm, I'm you know, held captive to numbers, but because I'm thinking, we got to get ready. And a lot of times it's not a bad thing, right? But it is if the way Yahweh's going to get you from here to there is you actually just remaining faithful. So do you see how this works? Okay, so uh, he, does, he gives Abraham this kind of insight. What was Abram doing before? Before any of chapter 15, what was he doing? He was simply living in trust. But what happens in chapter 16, verse 1 through 4 or 5 that I just read is that Abram and Sarai begin to take matters into their own hands and try to fulfill the word of the Lord on their own. What does the word of the Lord say in 1513? Here we go. This is why it's not so random. He mentions that there will be 400 years of his descendants being slaves in where? Egypt. Where does Hagar come from? Egypt. I've heard someone teach it like this before. Yahweh forgave because Abram's eventually going to have the promise, Isaac. Okay? So Yahweh forgave and still upheld both ends of the covenant he made with Abram in Genesis 15 that we just talked about. He still forgave and he still upheld. But discipline had to be implemented to teach the greater lesson, don't try to take matters into your own hands, just trust. Abram had descendants later on that would spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt, which was Yahweh trying to knock it into their heads. If you'll just trust me, because remember, who is receiving the book of Genesis for the first time? the Israelites about to go into the promised land and receive everything the Lord has just promised Abram that they're reading about or hearing about. Okay? So you have to keep this in context. This isn't just a bunch of random stories that just kind of happen. These are very pointed stories to a very independent, particular audience. Israel. So they're hearing this, and here's what they're hearing. 
This is the land, and you are the descendants of this man, Abram. And it's because of this. But here's the mistake Abram made. When he heard that his descendants were going to come through his own body, he then starts scheming into how to make this work as an independent being with now information. So they devised this plan. Well, he didn't mention you, Sarai. He really just mentioned me. So let's just bring your servant, right? And what happened? He slept with her, and immediately she conceived. They've got to be thinking at this point, that must have been what the Lord was talking about. That's, it all makes sense now. That was easy. I get two wives. Praise the Lord. You know, like, you know it's just like win-win for Abram, right? He has Ishmael, and the Lord comes in later on and says, no, 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 no. That's not the plan. This is why I wasn't telling you the details before. Because if they had stayed in, let's say, in silence, if they had stayed in silence, he would have been faithful like he had been doing. I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe it. He would have been faithful to the point when Sarai had reached the moment of her designed intention where she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. And I believe Ishmael would be nowhere to be found in any of your scriptures if Abram had been okay living in a moment or living in years of Yahweh not telling him how this is going to happen. So, so what happened? Hagar came into the picture because they went into Egypt. Because of what we've learned about why Lot was with Abram, remember, why was Lot there? Abram thought that's how it was going to happen. We can conclude that Abram and Sarai still are oblivious to the fact that Yahweh is going to bring promise through the barren and too old Sarai. After all, he did only say, as I've been saying, that it was Abram's child. It's totally plausible that Abram could get a younger girl pregnant. This is what you think in independent terms, right? It's totally possible for me to get Hagar, this young slave, pregnant. But for me to get Sarai pregnant? Impossible. She's too old. Not only the fact that she's too old, she's barren. We've tried this before. Does this sound like something that, let me just, this sounds like stuff I do. That I'll beg the Lord for insight, beg the Lord for insight, and then start doubting when he doesn't give me insight. And think, well, he must not be good. Well, he must be a mean dad. Well, he must be all this stuff. And then when he does give me insight to teach me a lesson, what do I do? I take that insight and say, thank you, talk to you later, and go right to try to do it on my own. I'm going to Lord, 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 give you a better job. Awesome. What do you do? You get on Indeed, and you start applying for every single job you can find. Right? That's, see, this, is what, this is what we do. Because we don't really trust God. We use God as the one who holds all the information and think God is simply the one like the Internet, that we just Google, what do I need to do here? And we can grab the answer and then close it out. That, that, this is how we view God. In America, because we've built America on independence. Lord, I mean, Fourth of July is called Independence Day, right? And I'm thankful for independence when it comes to countries. But 
We, as a society, have built our entire livelihoods on being independent. I did this. We did this. We're the greatest in the world. We're the strongest in the world. We're the most powerful in the world. None of y'all did that. We built this. Right? So this is what we, we call it pride. I mean, we call it a good kind of pride, but it's pride. At least we're honest. You know? I mean, I got pride. And so we've built our society on the mindset that this is all about me gathering all the information that I can and making my own decision because I did this anyway. And so, so we filter things that Jesus teaches through that rather than filtering all this through what Jesus teaches. So we'll here seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and we'll filter it through the lens of America, honestly, and we'll start changing theologically what Jesus was actually saying. I, I, that, here's, what, here's what Jesus was actually saying. No, 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 no. He said it. He meant what he said. If he wanted to go into detail, he would have gone into detail. He was actually saying you just need to you know, work hard. No. Be still and know that I am God. This is stuff I say on a weekly basis. And I think sometimes people wonder why I say the same things almost every single week. I do it on purpose. I'm not crazy. Y'all know me. I'm not cra- Some of y'all think I am crazy. I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm trying to instill it just like, just like our daughter. I, if we say stuff enough, she'll start saying it. You know? And then eventually, she'll, hopefully, she'll start living it. So in short... When Yahweh starts opening up about things he had previously been silent on, or, as I like, showed restraint in, Abram, now holding key information, shifts from dependence to independence and tries to make it happen on his own. Let me say it like this. And I said this. If Yahweh had stayed silent on the details, we would never know an Ishmael. We would never know an Ishmael. Now the question comes in. Why then did Yahweh even do that? Because as you go into the message, if, if he knew what Abram was going to do with this information, why would he just spill? Why didn't he say, it's not for you to know? Because honestly, Abram's track record is still trusting. Right? Abram's the one that when he finally has Isaac, the Lord says, I'm going to need you to give me Isaac. And what does he do? Packs him up, takes him right up a hill. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. If you go back and read the story, do you know what he withholds from Isaac? What's about to happen? He ain't crazy. I, I, wonder, I wonder if during that whole situation, if he was looking back on this moment and said, I messed up when I had too much information, so I'm going to withhold information from him because I'm good. They climb up the mountain. They get to the top. Isaac says, Where, where's the animal? Right? So the question comes in here. Why would Yahweh give Abram the details he gave him if he knew what was going to happen? Number one, number one, there's two reasons, I believe. Number one, first, he didn't make a mistake, okay? It seems like 
Yahweh made a mistake by doing this. He did not. Abram should have still been able to trust, maybe even more so, with this information. Just to be clear, a lot of times we'll put a man or woman in free will and their inability to live up to a certain standard, primarily holiness or righteousness or beloved, and we'll put their failure on God's character. So we look at this story, well, Abram messed up. Why in the world? Yahweh wasn't assuming Abram would mess up with this stuff. So Yahweh's giving the man who up till this point has been completely faithful insight into something with trust and belief that he would uphold his faithfulness and consistency in being faithful. That's how good Yahweh is and how good he sees you. He always errs on the side of assuming the best out of you. He never assumes that you're going to mess this up. He never assumes that you're going to, but even when you do or if you do, I'm going to still be there to pick you right back up and keep going. So he gives imperfect people like myself a microphone to teach other imperfect people. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't assume that I'm going to get up here and one day mess this up. He assumes that I'm going to continue to live by the Spirit like I have been up till this point. And it's up to me to choose whether or not I'm actually going to continue to do that. But if I fail, it's not Yahweh's failure. It's my failure. Okay? So Yahweh did not make a mistake. Abram should have been able to trust even more. And number two, I believe this story, okay, like I said earlier, written first to the wilderness Israelites about to inherit the promised land is a point to Abram and all of us that Yahweh does nothing flippantly or fickle. That every single thing he does is on purpose and everything is for our good. That's Romans 8, 28. That if he promised Abram and a barren Sarah that they were going to have descendants like the star in the sky, that the whole globe would be blessed through his descendants. If he promised them that, we don't need to know how. We just need to know that every word that he speaks does not return to his mouth void or empty, but it accomplishes what he sent it to accomplish. So all I've got to know is that he spoke. All I've got to know is he told us to start a family in Columbia, and I've seen visions of people worshiping down Main Street. And like I've said before, do you know what we're not doing next weekend? Throwing a stage at the, at the state house and offering people $1 million gift cards to show up so we can make that dream come true. That's not what we're doing. We're staying consistent knowing that if he spoke it, he's the one that's got to bring it to pass, not me. And you can rest. You can rest in knowing I've got to be in love with him. And as long as I'm in love with him, the spirit will move me by the impulses of the will of God to the point where my will actually becomes his will. Unbelievable stuff. So silence is goodness, not distance. And I hated writing that because it sounds so tweetable. And I hate that. Okay? But that's just how I got it. Silence is goodness. It is not distance. Yahweh knows our tendency to try and extort promises he speaks. He knows it. Usually way too early. So in love, he allows us to live in trust to divine restraint 
because he wants us to see and be everything he has promised. If you've prayed or asked the Lord something and you haven't received an answer or it seems like he's been silenced towards that, silent towards that, it's not, it's not, you don't sit back and be like, Lord, I, I thought you. That's when you sit back and say, praise the Lord. Christmas is coming. Our daughter all throughout this year has just randomly will be in stores or, you know, whatever. And she's so sweet. Like, you ask her what she wants for Christmas, she say, she'll say, like, I just want a ball. Or, you know, like, just so sweet. Um, but all throughout the year, you know, she'll randomly just be like, man, you know, I want this or I want this or I want this. That we don't get for her. Right? And again, it's not because we're evil. It's because we know Christmas is coming. And there's a lot of these, these toys that are ages, for example, like four and up. Well, right now she's age three. But in December, she turns four. So even with some of those that she wants, there is a maturity that she hasn't reached to be able to effectively enjoy the things that we actually desire and are going to give her. Right? So she reaches a measure of maturity, and when she turns four, Christmas morning, she'll wake up, she'll show up and be all this stuff, and I say all very loosely, some of the stuff that she thought that we had either forgotten about or she thought that we had just said, you know what, you don't deserve that. We're not going to get that for you. All that stuff that she had thought on Christmas morning, she's going to realize, oh, I understand. It was for this. I wasn't ready yet. You don't buy a 12-year-old a car. Why? Because they can't drive. Think, I, I, it might be better for 12-year-olds to drive than some of y'all has got license. But, just kidding. So somebody just, who whistled? <laughs> somebody just gave me the biggest amen I've gotten all day. Um, but, but why don't we do that? The reason we don't do that is because they haven't reached a level where they can effectively utilize the gift. So if you're praying for something and it seems like the Lord is just silent, that's why I say just buckle up and get ready because there's going to be a morning you wake up and the Lord is going to hand you a gift wrap present that's going to be everything that you've prayed for. And in that moment, you're going to realize, now I know why he was silent. It's not because he was mean. It's not because he was unwilling. It's not because he was fickle. And it sure is not because he's on planet Pluto. Right? Some, some of you are like, why did he mention that? Because that's what we think heaven is. We think heaven is a billion miles in space, like the Star Wars thing. Right. One, one, eight billion light years away. No, no, no. Yahweh is here and now, right? So we think when he's silent or he's not divulging details of things, that he's being fickle or he must be in a bad mood today or I must have done something against him. And it's probably because you're just not ready yet. And that's okay. The reason we don't have a building right now is because we're not ready yet. And I've got to learn to see that as goodness, not as evil, not as him being unfaithful, not as him being anything other than good. I've got to see, thank you, you're not giving me something that I cannot handle right now. From when Yahweh made the grand promise about descendants to Abram, like the stars in the sky, to when Isaac was actually born through Sarah, Abram waited 25 years. 25 years. 
75 when he received it, and 100 when he had Isaac. 25 years. I know a lot of people that won't wait 25 days for anything. I know some people won't wait 25 minutes for anything. 25 years. How many moments do you think Abram looked back at that covenant moment, let's say? How many moments do you think he looked back in those 25 years? Just to put it in perspective, I'm 28. So basically my entire lifetime. It's a long time. So how many times or how many moments do you think Abram's looking back at that covenant or looking back at the Genesis 12 moment when he gives him this grand promise in his thinking? Did he forget? Did he lie? Did I miss here? Did I do something wrong? I mean, I could be wrong. And again, I can't prove it. But like I always say, you can't disprove it. Like, there, there had to be multiple moments where Abram started questioning what is going on. Until 25 years later, he's holding Isaac. He's called the father of faith. The one through whom faith was credited to him as righteousness. Because though naturally all independent, logical ways for he and Sarai to conceive had passed away, he knew Yahweh would come through on his word in the end. It teaches us two things. Matt, go ahead and hop up here. I told you I would be done a little earlier today. But I'm not done yet. So it, I'm just kidding. It teaches us two things. Number one, that those who live by faith don't need to know how. We simply need to know the character of the one who spoke. We need to allow ourselves to see him as immutably good and see ourselves as immutably loved by Abba with the same love that he loves Jesus with. This is where rest culminates. We struggle resting because we still think we're independent. And independent beings have to get things done or they will fail. Matt, turn that down a little bit if you don't mind. Thanks. Right? As independent beings, we have to get things done or we fail. So rest is simply you or I setting ourselves up for failure if we're independent, which is why in America we struggle so much with rest. When you hear rest, you see it negatively. Why? Because any moment you're resting, you're not getting it done. And if you're not getting it done, what does our society tell you? You will fail. But rest is the lifestyle, not just a moment. It's the lifestyle of the one who has been fully reborn into the life of radical trust and dependence on a father who is so good that he'll keep us from the details of how or he'll patiently restrain the things that we would take and run independently with. What if you've been cursing silence when silence is actually his goodness at work within you? What if you've been cursing the thing that's actually bringing into you into your fulfillment? Try, when you're in that moment, to step, or excuse me, to stop and say, thank you 
that you so want me to have the fullness of your word that you're going to surprise me with it. Because if I, if I, excuse me, because I would try and shortcut the process and do things in my own timing. What if instead of cursing silence, we stopped in those moments and said, thank you that you so want me to have the fullness of your word that you're going to surprise me with it because I would try and shortcut the process and do things in my own timing. Number two, second thing this teaches us, and this is the last part. Those who live by faith think in terms of generations, not ourselves. What does Hebrews eleven thirteen say? Very familiar. It says this. These heroes, right after he spoke about Abraham, the writer of Hebrews speaks and says, these hero, heroes all died still clinging to their faith not even receiving all that had been promised them, but they saw beyond the horizon the fulfillment of their promises and gladly embraced it from afar. They all lived their lives on earth as those belonging to another realm. Abram's whole story is about his faithfulness to a promise of land and innumerable descendants. But when he died... He saw two of those in that line. Isaac, and shortly before he died, Jacob. Jacob was alive for a few years before Abram died. So there's an assumption he probably would have known Jacob or at least seen him. Okay, So when he dies, the Lord takes him. Remember, takes him out of his tent, looks up at the stars and says, try to count them. That's how many descendants you'll have. On his deathbed, He's counting two. If you're thinking like we think in terms of our lifetime, and I wish I had my whiteboard out here, but you'll look at a whiteboard and you'll say, Abram had this many years. And if the Lord was going to come through on that promise, he had to produce thousands of kids before he died. Right? And yet had two. If you think in terms of America, we would say he failed, the Lord failed, and he must not have heard clearly. I, I wonder if sometimes the Lord speaks things to people like, I'm going to give you a church of 15,000 people. And we just assume he means in our lifetime. I wonder if what the Lord is actually saying is, I want you to be faithful. And in 400 years, you're going to have 15,000 people. We, we, don't, we don't think in terms of eternity. We think in terms of time. Why? Because I've got to be in control of this. And the only way I can be in control of this is if I see it in my lifetime to have my hands on it. And in order for Abraham to hear the words, your descendants are going to be in Egypt 400 years, and then they're going to get the promised land. He's got two things going through his mind. Number one, if that's 400 years from now, I'm not going to be alive. Number two, if I'm not going to be alive, I may not ever see anything he ever spoke to me. But what does Hebrew 11 say? They die still clinging to their faith, 
they all live their lives on earth as those belonging to another realm. What is the other realm? Eternity. God doesn't do anything based on what fits your timeline. He does everything based on what is best, no matter how long that takes. And that's why I say we're going to see revival. We're going to see the last, the last great awakening, not because it's going to be the one that precedes the rapture, but because it's going to be so full of the Spirit that it'll never end. It's going to be the last, not because it ends at a certain moment, but because it never ends. That's what I believe. But I believe it's going to take a little longer than any of us think. I hope it takes a little longer than any of us think. Well, Josh, why would you say that? Because if we inherited the fullness of what Yahweh had to give us now, we would ruin it. Prove it. First great awakening, second great awakening. What are we not in right now? Either of those. And that's not to dishonor or anything like that. I, I don't want to be a part of something that ends when I die or when my kids die or when my grandkids die. That's not what I signed up for. I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm going to be a part of something that gets more glorious and more glorious and more glorious until Jesus says, I cannot be away from my bride any longer and he comes back to reign with us. That's what I'm living my life for. But I have seen how this ends. And this ends with us consistently and faithfully tending the flame of devotion. So that when our kid, and it's not going to cause the whole city of Columbia to flock to our church tomorrow, but it is going to cause my grandkids to be more on fire than I am and your grandkids to be more on fire than you are. Could we have such a dependence on God that we start stretching our view to what happens when I'm not here? What happens beyond me that requires dependence. Why? Because you literally have to take your hands off of it and trust that he's going to take the seed that he planted in your life and grow it and grow it and grow it and grow it. It causes you to have to die to everything you thought was going to be your prideful, independent success in your life. It causes it. Yahweh might make you the most successful person on earth, or he might make you the granddad that never wavered in his faith. Are you okay with either of those? I, I get messages all the time that I shouldn't preach this stuff to people who are young. I, I beg, I think we need to catch them young. This is not about you. It may sound like this. It is about you. But it ain't like you think. Yahweh wants you to see life to the full way more than he wants to see your bank account full. And if your bank account full is going to require your life to the full to be weakened or killed, he'll refuse to release your bank account being full. If you want it in just simple terms. So I believe, this time I'm going to end this. I believe Yahweh has to do what he does sometimes because we haven't become who we are designed to become yet. But if we could allow the Holy Spirit to transform how we think, to transform our lives, to transform how we operate, I believe we could get to a place of such trust and dependence that he could actually begin to give us details on things and us take them and continue to operate on dependence and trust. That's not what he longs to do. He does it for our good. That's not what he desires to do. 
He desires you and Him in a garden day in and day out and day in and day out. And He gives you all His secrets. You give Him all your secrets. And there begins to be this divine romance back and forth and back and forth that in that spin, creation starts to be brought back into its design intention, which is led by a conquered man, a conquered woman, and a creator that are operating together as one. Dependence isn't just a call to rest. It's imperative in your legacy seeing the fullness of what was spoken to you. This room is full of patriarchs and matriarchs who are holding things in this room right now who are holding things, some of which we'll never see in our lifetime, but are key to the globe being transformed into the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. There are patriarchs and matriarchs, sons and daughters in this room, that there are seeds within you, seeds within you, that when they reach their fulfillment, are going to be so massive, the globe will have to shift based on what's coming out of you. That's what's in this room. But us honoring, us honoring those seeds in our lifetime will give way for a Moses and ultimately a Joshua and ultimately a Yeshua. I want to I end like this. Ironically, we're kind of announcing youth at this point with all this going on. I say ironically real loosely. But where in your life have you bought into this idea that God is fickle, that God is um, moody, and depending on what mood he's in, I've got to remain faithful through it all. If he's in a bad mood, I still got to be faithful. If he's in a good mood, I still got to be faithful. Where have we bought into that lie? God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He is not moody. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't waver. Now, we do. We are moody, right? We don't trust. We try to do things on our own. But God never changes, so once we understand that and the character of it, we then have to look at our lives. And when we ask the Lord what's coming after dinner and we don't hear an answer, we've got to trust it must be something good. So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, whatever kind of rearranging in our worlds needs to happen, then uh, just take this moment and do that. Lord, I pray. For anybody watching online or anybody in the room right now um, or listening to this later, I pray that you would just begin to reframe our worlds around who we are. You called us sons and daughters, sons and daughters. And the one thing, no matter what color, no matter what country they come from, no matter what their background is, no matter if they're richer or poor, the one thing that unites every single human being on planet earth is that when you're a son or you're a daughter, you're dependent on your caretaker. That unites everybody. So you called us sons and daughters to mark us as those 
who have the blood of the king, who have the inheritance of the king, but who live dependent on the king. My daughter doesn't think one time about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. She enjoys life and trusts that mom and dad are going to take care of the details. What if we could approach the kingdom as a child? Is that what Jesus meant when he said, unless we approach the kingdom as a child, we'll never inherit it? Could that be it? When he said, let the little children come unto me, could he have been talking about something a lot deeper than little kids right there in that moment coming to him? Could it be that he was inviting sons and daughters to come into a relationship where you don't have to worry about the details, but you can simply trust in the goodness of the one that appeared to Abram in a smoking pot and a fire stick saying, I'll uphold both ends of the covenant because really all I want is you. God, stretch our view. Stretch our view to see beyond ourselves and into what you're doing in the broad stroke of the globe. And God, we pray as we wrap up just together, we pray over our country. Ellington mentioned this in worship, but um, we're going into what could be the most divisive month maybe in the history of our country. And I pray that a church united in a moment of dark divisiveness would shine so bright into the globe that this month won't tear our nation apart. It'll actually be an opportunity for the church to rise up in a way it's never risen up before. Bring our country together. But ultimately, I pray, Jesus, you would reign as king in America. There's no electing that. You are king. So, Lord, we love you in your name. Amen. Amen.